nice to see each one that's here, and it's good to be here. Glad to have the opportunity to visit today and to preach the gospel tonight, because it's the most important message that anyone could hear. And I think maybe you, there might be some here tonight that think that's a bit exaggerated, but not in the least. The most important message I ever heard was that Christ had died for my sins. And the most important message for each person in the meeting this evening is to hear that message and to receive it and to know with absolute certainty to know where you will be forever in heaven or in hell. Nothing else matters by comparison. Now, I want to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, just one verse that's been in my mind for the week, actually, and uh, it was not only in my mind this morning, I noticed it was in the mind of some others too, and I'd just like to read it with you. I wish I could tell you all that's in this verse. So I know before I start that I won't be able to succeed in that because there are profound truths in this verse beyond our ability to understand. But here are the words, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. I assume that everybody in the meeting tonight will know that good old hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved the Wretch Like Me. And this verse is really about that amazing grace. And John Newton was amazed that grace had saved him. And everybody that's in heaven for eternity will be amazed that grace has saved me, each one. And if you're on the way to heaven tonight, the more you know about what this verse speaks about, the more amazed you will be. But maybe there's someone in the meeting tonight and you've never realized what a tremendous, what an amazing truth God's grace is. And I hope tonight not simply to point out to you from the word of God why you should regard it as amazing, but I do hope tonight that the result of the meeting will be you will realize how personal this grace is for you and that you will trust the Savior whose grace was so marvelously displayed as this verse tells us. So we're looking really at the great truth of, of grace that is amazing, of a kindness that was never deserved, of a kindness that paid supremely, of a kindness that extends to you the most important blessing that you could ever receive. So let me just speak to you a little bit, first of all, about the desire of grace. That is that there was, there is a God who has existed forever, and he has had a longing, a desire in his heart that never had a beginning, that had you in mind personally, 
and that was willing to do everything in his capability, and he's God, in order to extend to you the greatest possible blessing. And if that sounds like something that's just beyond the realm of the ordinary, beyond the realm of what's natural, then it is. But it's available to you tonight. Just think of the desire of God, knowing just exactly where you would be. Knowing exactly what your future would be apart from the grace of God. I'm not just sure where you are at the present moment as far as what you understand from the Bible. But just let me be right direct tonight and tell you that apart from the grace of God touching your life and mine, apart from a personal change being made in your life or in mine by the grace of God, your soul will be lost in hell forever. That's not the usual way we think. We're all Christians by name. And we all uh, believe about Jesus Christ. And we all try to live good lives. And and we all make mistakes. But in the end, everybody's going to be in heaven. Surely that's the way it's going to turn out. Because that's the way we dream about things. And they lived happily ever after. But I do want you to know tonight that it is possible to live happily ever after. But it's only through the grace of God. So maybe the first thing I would want to ask you tonight is, has there ever been that defining moment in your life when you personally trusted Christ as your Savior? I remember visiting door to door in Virginia uh, a few years ago now and meeting a lady there. And she had been brought up with a totally different outlook than Christianity. And so I had the privilege of trying to present to her reasons why the Bible is reliable, reasons why Jesus Christ is reliable, reasons why Christianity is the faith that God himself has entrusted to men. And I didn't get to see her very often, but on occasion when I would visit there, I would go to her door and I would find out just where she was. One day she told me, to my joy... She told me, I now believe in Christianity. Now that's a tremendous step from where she had been to accepting the Bible as the authority to accepting the presentation of God that's in the Bible to accepting the the reality of a Christ who came from heaven and who died on a cross and who rose the third day. So you say, did you ever go back to visit her again? I sure did. Because believing in Christianity is not being saved. Believing in Christianity was the most important thing for her. But when it came to this great matter of the eternal destiny, it is a matter of a personal moment when, as a sinner, the individual trusts Christ to save him from his sins. Trusts Christ to deliver him from the condemnation that he deserved. In her case, that she deserved. So I did have the privilege of visiting her again and a few other times. And there was a day, the reason I'm telling the story is because there came another day when I went back to visit her and she said to me, I have been saved. And she told me how she had personally trusted Christ as Savior. I don't know whether everybody here this evening believes the foundational truths of the Bible as far as Christianity, but I want you to know tonight that that is not sufficient for salvation. 
In fact, I, I'll tell you another story. But I might have more to tell you than just stories. But this will help illustrate perhaps exactly what I'm after. We went to the home to visit Mike. And some of the folks here will know Mike up in upstate New York. His wife had come out to a gospel meeting on the previous Friday night. And wonderfully, in that meeting on the Friday night, the first gospel meeting she had ever come to, she trusted the Lord Jesus as her Savior. And then she became concerned about her husband, Mike, and went to tell him. And he said, oh, I've had the same thing happen to me. So she told us, Mike says to me that the same thing happened to him, but I'm not so sure. So Paul Kember and I went to see Mike on a Saturday before we left town. And Mike was big and a happy smile and not the kind of fellow you'd want to arm wrestle or any other kind of wrestle. And uh, so we had a pleasant conversation, got to know Mike and talked about things. And then I, don't, I think maybe she introduced the subject and Mike told us that, yes, he had had a, a conversion time in his life. So, Mike, tell us about it. Well, I was brought up in one of the faiths that is connected with Christianity, and I was involved in the activities of the congregation, uh, but I, I really had a struggle when I was about 12 years old. I can almost picture just exactly where he was because he told us, described the whole thing. Walking down the road, a big tree over here, a farmhouse over here, and the barns over there, and he said it was like there was someone on this shoulder and someone on this shoulder that said, don't believe it, and somebody on this shoulder that says, do believe it. And he said, as I walked down, and I remember that so graphically, and I decided right there and then, I am going to believe in Christianity. Big smile. That was like, how do you like that, fellas? And it was like, Mike, we've got to go to what the Bible says. Because salvation, this having eternal life, this is being right with God, depends on a moment of personal faith in Christ. A moment in which the value of what Christ did on the cross becomes personal to the individual. John's Gospel, and we went through various passages, John's Gospel makes it absolutely clear. It is the personal appreciation of the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus that makes that defining moment between a person traveling on the road down to eternal judgment and traveling on the road that now leads to heaven. So that's really what I want to ask you tonight to start with. Has there ever been that moment when amazing grace became personal to you and you took in the truth that on that cross, Jesus of Nazareth suffered and died because there was no other way for my sin to be forgiven and he paid the price for me. Wonderful truth. Amazing grace. And these people to whom Paul is writing, these Corinthians, he says, ye know, ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. How did they know? Well, they didn't learn it at their mother's knee because they would be brought up in heathendom. They would have been brought up in, in a, a, a city in which there was all kinds of religion, so-called, temple worship, idol worship, Immorality connected with the worship, all kinds of, of things that were common in that city, so different from what the grace of God provided. And uh, there's a long list of things that are not very 
very pleasantly des- uh, pleasant to describe uh, these individuals, not very complimentary. But Paul says, such were some of you. And what transformed them? According to what Paul says in the first Corinthian epistle, he says, this is what you based your whole faith on. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Everything is based on this. A living man who suffered for sins, who was raised from the dead, and now offers personal salvation to all who will receive him. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul writes. These weren't perfect people, but they knew the grace of God. There was a moment in life when they had received that message and were personally saved through the Lord Jesus who died for sins on the cross according to the scriptures. And behind all of this, that's the human side. That's what was taking place. Paul was there because God had a desire to save people in Corinth. And God has a desire to save people in New York City. And God has a desire to save people, dare I say it, in San Francisco. And God has a desire to save people in Midland Park. Because as far as heaven is concerned, the greatest gravity, the greatest seriousness of life is this. Where are you going to be when life is over? And perhaps you're saying tonight, listen, I would like you to talk to me about the things of life and about how I'm going to live my life and how to enjoy my life. That's exactly what I had in mind to tell you tonight. But before you can get that straight, you'll have to find out where you're going to be for eternity. Because you may be exiting life for eternity at any moment. And if you miss the way and enjoy everything you could possibly enjoy in life, but you miss the way for eternity, you've made a great mistake that you'll never be able to repair. But if you live with the certainty, not not a certainty that ignores the facts, not a certainty that just depends on a good feeling that comes over you, not a certainty that depends on somebody else telling you, you really are all right, I really admire how kind and unselfish you are and you are an exemplary Christian and a thousand other things that someone else may tell you. A confidence that relies solely on the word of God that you will be in heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ plus nothing. Unless you have that, you have no right to enjoy life. If you really understood things as they are, there would be one thing in your mind tonight How can I know that I am saved? How can I know that I will be in heaven for all eternity? This this is the ultimate issue. This is the greatest gravity of life because it deals with the greatest guilt as far as life is concerned as well. All of us compare ourselves with others. And I know, in fact, I remember... Dr. Higgins, when he was uh, a bit younger, he spent a lot of time in prison. Well, but not because he was in prison, but because as a doctor he was visiting in prison and uh, giving his services there. But uh, I remember when, when he was doing that, he's talking about the different ones that he had met and remarkable things about them. But the reality is that if this person was there for murder, then that person was there for 
some other crime that they regarded as more terrible than their crime. Everybody could find somebody else that had done something worse than they had. And we all have that innate capability without going to prison and without being criminal. Every one of us has that same capability. But as far as God is concerned, he says there's no difference for all have sinned. And the reason why at the end of the road there is judgment is because at this present moment there is a burden of sin. You're used to carrying it and perhaps not conscious of it. But the word of God makes it very clear. This is what God is concerned about. When you meet God, this matter of your sin is going to come up. It's not something that God just kind of overlooks and dismisses. They try, too bad, but it's all right. God is concerned about your sin, about my sin. Here's what the wise man says in the book of Ecclesiastes. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth. And let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth. And walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. Have you got that so far? God says you can be careless when it's, when you're young. You can do everything you want when you're young. And you can disregard any thought about God or anything else that's a problem. Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth. And let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth. And walk in the ways of thy heart and in the sight of thine eyes. Do what you want to do. Do what you see to do. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. For all these things God will bring thee into judgment. There is an afterward to sin. There is an accountability that is yours with God himself. And it's the matter of this guilt that focuses our thinking tonight on the world that is to come. If you die with one sin unforgiven, you die with no hope of heaven for all eternity. If you die in your sins, the Lord Jesus says, where I am, ye cannot come. And so tonight, God's grace desires to bring blessing to man. Desires to deliver men from going down to eternal judgment. Listen tonight, if God had his way with you, he would have you prepared for heaven. If you were to enjoy what God wants you to enjoy, you would be enjoying the grace of God with the assurance that every sin is forgiven and that you are ready to meet God and to spend eternity in heaven. That is the desire of grace. Well, you say then, why doesn't God just simply say, I love them all so much and I want them to be in heaven and I want their sins to be forgiven? Good. All forgiven. And everyone's going to heaven. Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Could I tell you tonight that God could find no other way to forgive one of your sins apart from grace being displayed as we have read it in the chapter this evening. Grace that brought the Lord Jesus from heaven to a cross of shame. And this is the part I wish I could I could convey to you tonight. I just want you to think for a moment. Try to let your mind just expand as far as it will and understand what is embraced in this statement. He was rich. He is the God who always existed. He is the God who needed nothing to make him greater. 
He is a God who could not be made greater by any contribution from anyone else. And he is the God who spoke and worlds came into existence. The Big Bang? Well, the way it's all described is not the way that God says it happened and there was nobody else there but God to tell us. And the big moment when everything came to be was when God spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. There was a moment when matter came to be. And it did not come to be from mindlessness. It came to be by a design that could only be a design of an infinitely wise God. And the very existence of a world is all in place because this one that we're reading about was rich in capability, in power. So rich in capability that, oh, I love what it says in Isaiah chapter 40. It just says he measures the waters of the earth in the the palm of his hand. Got that? How much of a drink can you get out of the palm of your hand? If I'm at all thirsty, it'll take me quite a few dips and it's not all in my hand. I'll get it splashed up a bit. The vastness of the ocean with its depths. Just just in the hollow of his hand. And the, and the nations of the world. And, and the mountains of the world. In the scales just compared to, to dust of the scales. As far as God is concerned. The greatness of God. But, but I want to tell you more than that. That there is the glory of God. In all the outshining of glory that men cannot really approach to. Men cannot live, abide in the presence of the glory, the manifestation, the awesomeness of this God who was rich. As far as the riches of this God, I want you to think just for a moment of the fact of the, of the, the, the graces of this God. Every moral feature that is good is all present in full measure in God. That's too theoretical a way to say it. I don't, know, I don't know a better way to say it. But I want you to know that God could not be more loving than He is. God could not be more kind than He is. The God of the Bible could not be more fair than He is. He could not... And you say, well, okay, then He must be limited. He couldn't be any more fair. No, what I mean is it would be impossible that there could be any fairness beyond His fairness. Impossible that there could be any love beyond his love. Impossible that there could be any kindness beyond his kindness. Impossible that there could be any holiness beyond the holiness of God. That absolute hatred of what is wrong. That absolute delight in what is right. The holiness of God. Absolutely full full in every measure. In all the entirety of God's being. Absolutely perfect. Not a flaw to be found in him. No whims in God. Everything he does is done consistently because everything he does expresses his character fully. I don't know. Did you understand what I just tried to say? Every once in a while I act out of character. And I do something nice. I think I did sometime. God never acts out of character. 
Everything he does expresses the fullness of his character. He never does something that's fair but not quite kind to somebody else. He never does something that is is right but it, it it's designed to hurt someone else. All of God's attributes are in full measure in everything that he does. He never changes his mind because he is always wise in all that he does. He is always loving in all that he does. In everything, in every act, so different from the gods conceived by men. Might I just say that? So different from the conception of so many other gods that call themselves rivals to Christianity. There is one true God and only one God. And there is one true God who is perfect in every way. And he is the God of the Bible from which we read. He is rich in character. In all, he is rich in gifts to give to others. He's called in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Lord of glory. He has every blessing that is possible from a God who is infinite. He has every blessing at his ability to dispense to others. And he's interested in dispensing those. He was rich. But in order to dispense those blessings, he became poor. There's the height of the grace of God. Incomprehensible greatness. Ineffable riches that were his. He was rich. Yet for your sake, he became poor. How rich? I told you I couldn't tell you. And I haven't told you. But it's an absolute statement. He was immeasurably rich. How poor did he become? Well, you and I don't think it. We think that the humankind is the greatest thing there is. But I want to tell you, it was a long way from where he was to where he came to be a man. Just for him to be a man, truly a man, was an amazing stoop of grace coming down and down and down into his creation until he became a man. Truly human. He lived and breathed. He had mannerisms like a man. He appeared in every way to be a man. One great distinction. One beautiful distinction. He never sinned. He never could sin. He never thought a thought that was just out of, uh, off color. He never somehow or other had a motive that was not absolutely pure. But he became poor. Not only in becoming a man. But he chose to become a man in a home of poverty. And when his mother made an offering at the beginning of his life, an offering for her purification, it was the part of the law that had to be fulfilled. What she brought was the offering of a poor person. He came into a home where he was poor. And for those that preach a get-rich gospel, I can just tell you this, it's so different from the Savior who became poor. Yes, materially poor, but it's more than that. Because becoming poor involved his going to a place called Calvary. And he went to that cross. In fact, we were thinking about it this morning. Who being in the form of God, that's the height of grace. He thought it not a thing to be grasped at to be on equality with God. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant being made in the likeness of a man. 
and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Have you got the picture? Lower and lower and lower until he became obedient to his God to the extent that he was willing to die. You say, that doesn't seem very far down to me. I mean, we're all going to have to die. Because there was no sin in him, he did not have to die. Because he was God incarnate. He was fully God and fully man and one unique person. Because he was God, he could say, No man taketh my life from me. I lay it down of myself. He gave his life on that cross. Voluntarily. By his own command. Not suicide. He laid down his life voluntarily. And he laid down his life voluntarily on a cross. Even the depth of the cross. The greatest depth of human existence. The greatest degree of suffering possible for a human being was the degree of the suffering of the Lord Jesus. And if I could measure for you the distance from that lowest point to the highest point, then I would be conveying to you tonight amazing grace. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Why on that cross did he cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why on that cross did he bear the sin of the world? Why on that cross did he suffer God's holy judgment against sin? Why on that cross was he accursed of God? That to me is the most astounding thing. That the Bible tells us he was made a curse for us. Because the Bible says, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And on that cross, He who was fully God, suffering for sin, was a curse of God. And when you think you have understood that, then you have not begun. It's overwhelming. It's amazing. I... I and we'll sing them, Lord willing, at the end of the meeting. I love the words. And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. Have you got that? The Creator of everything. The One who was infinitely rich. The highest of the high. A man who never ceased to be all that He was eternally. Hanging on a cross. He is God incarnate. We sang it tonight. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And there are those that want to have a quibble about the theology of it. I want to tell you tonight that the man who was on that cross was God. And he died. Because he was bearing sin. And there was no other way for God to put away sin but by the death of an infinitely valuable sacrifice. And on that cross... He who was rich came to the depths of poverty, of shame, sin-bearing in sacrifice on that cross. And I want to tell you that at the depths of the cross, at the depths of his poverty, in fact, the word means just a beggar asking for something else from others. I want you to know he was no beggar. I want you to know he never asked for anything from others except what would fulfill the word of God. But it was that kind of abject poverty that was his. He gave everything that he had. All the infinite value of his person was poured into the sacrifice that he made at Calvary. 
Do you want to know why tonight we proclaim a salvation that's available now? And we're, we're very clear from the Bible that salvation is not merited. It is not a process through which a person goes. To be right with God is not something you learn and when you have learned enough, then you will be okay. It's not something you experience and when you've experienced enough, then you will be alright. Salvation is a moment that depends solely and fully on the infinite value of Christ and the sacrifice he gave at Calvary. And because of that infinitely valuable sacrifice, there's nothing you need to add tonight. You can take that Savior for your Savior and have the full value of all that sacrifice to stand before God on your account. Ah, it's a wonderful thing to be saved. It's a wonderful thing to look at that cross and to realize that the highest of the high paid the ultimate price in sin and suffering and shame. The sacrifice giving his all himself on that cross. But did you notice three words that I want to emphasize? For your sake. The design of grace, God's longing to bless man. The display of grace, the rich became poor. And here is the dispensing of grace. This is what grace is making available to you at this present moment. That you, through his poverty, might be made rich. Listen, I want to tell you tonight that these riches can't be measured in millions. It might seem very comfortable to you tonight if somebody just handed to you some of these big earnings that sometimes are the result of a lottery or these TV shows and that people come in with a crying need and, I mean, God bless them all. And, and, they, and then they walk out with 500000 Wow, must be nice. Now, I'm not despising 500000 when I tell you that that's nothing compared to these riches. It doesn't belong in the same sentence with these riches that ye through his poverty might become rich. If I could describe them to you, I'd have to talk to you about what's in Ephesians chapter 1. For those who were saved by grace, by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And what is that gift? He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We, we sing it sometimes. I love this line of the hymn. And in him and in Christ, the Father gave us all that boundless love could give. Can I tell you tonight that God could not give more to an individual than he gave to me the moment I trusted Christ? I don't know. I don't know the extent of all that. I know more about it now than I knew then. And I expect that when I'm in heaven... I'll know more about it when I step onto that shore than I know now. And I'll tell you more than that. I think I'll know more about it a million years from now than I will the moment I step on the shore of heaven. And it could go on forever and forever. It's infinite. But I want you to know tonight it's a wonderful thing to be saved. It is a wonderful thing to know that there's not one sin that will ever be brought up. No condemnation. I want you to know tonight that it's wonderful to be accepted in the presence of God. It's wonderful to be absolutely sure that I am right in my standing before God. It is wonderful to know that God has given me a new life within. He has given me a life to know Him. He has brought me into an eternal relationship with Him. He has destined me for heaven. He has fitted me for heaven. And, and He Himself 
is a father to me. And day by day, moment by moment, he goes with me. And he's interested in every facet of life. And there's someone to whom you can come. I think it's a tragedy because I see it so often in the world. People get bad news about their health. It's never, no matter who you are, it's never a pleasant thing. But I want to tell you, it's a different thing when you're a child of God. And you know that you have a father that loves you. And you know that there's a gracious purpose behind everything that your father allows to touch your life. It's a wonderful thing. It's riches beyond measure. When you trust Christ. So I'm asking you tonight. Just exactly where will you be found at the end of this meeting? Will you be certain that you have these eternal riches that were paid for by the sufferings of Christ at Calvary? Or will you still go on with your own ideas, and maybe someone has come to the meeting tonight and you're doing everything you can to make yourself righteous with God. And you don't do this and you don't do that and you get up early in the morning to go here and to do that and, and all these things. And it is just one determined effort at self-improvement and at somehow winning the favor of God. And the Bible says it's not of works. And the Bible says that grace makes available to you tonight infinite riches in Christ. And you could leave the meeting tonight infinitely rich. Spiritually rich. Safe for eternity. Never to be in hell. Right with God. And enjoying the very presence of God now and for all eternity. Ah, tonight. Will you turn away from that to choose your own way and a world of sin that doesn't satisfy. And a life trying to find some meaning, some significance. And just this endless searching for more because it's never enough. Or will you leave the meeting tonight? Trusting this Christ by this grace, you're saved. At that moment, through faith in Christ, to leave this meeting with the gift of God, which is eternal life. You know, grandchildren are a great thing. I just couldn't fail to mention that to you before I quit. Grandchildren are great. And you just, uh, if you have a grandmother like some of our grandchildren do, and you've got a grandmother that builds up this gift that they've got. Got something for you now. When you come, we'll have something for you. And, you know, they just can't wait. And where, where is it? Where is it? Uh, and can we open it now? How long do we have to wait? No, you have to have your breakfast first. And, but they're just ready to get it right now. If I could tell you tonight the wonders of what the grace of God is offering to you, you'd want to get the gift right now and open it and enjoy it at this moment. And if I tell you that if you don't open it soon enough, you may never have it, and you may find yourself lost in hell for all eternity despite what the grace of God is offering to you, my soul tonight, would it not put some urgency into your thinking? This is the most important thing he know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In all the liberality of his heart and of his love, he was rich. He knew how poor he would become. But he came because there was no other way to make you rich, to make you right with God, and to have you in his home eternally. And so, for me, I think maybe there's some people who will join me here tonight. For me, 
I think of this truth and I thank God for amazing grace that though he was rich, yet for my sake, he became poor so that I, through his poverty, might become infinitely, eternally, undeservedly rich. Have you ever trusted him? Have you ever thanked him that he ever stooped so low to pay the mighty price for you? Have you ever received the grace of God by faith in the Lord Jesus? Let me just quote again the verse I've quoted. For by grace are ye saved. Through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. And it's not of works, lest any man should boast. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank thee tonight for the gospel of the grace of God.